is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be back. Hope you had a great weekend. Lots happening across the country, and uh, we'll cover a lot of it. We'll cover a lot of it. We will talk in a few moments with Mark Mix. Mark Mix is the head of the National Right to Work. Very interesting man. Great career. uh, Very thoughtful guy. He has a, a, a perspective and will talk to us about Charlie Crist, the Democrat congressman. He just re- he just resigned from the Congress because he is the nominee for governor of Florida running against Ron DeSantis. And we'll hear from him, hear from uh, Mark Mix on what uh, what uh, Charlie Crist did. Pretty extraordinary, really. He picked his um, running mate um, in Florida. You pick your running mate um as a governor's candidate, you pick your own. You don't. That person doesn't run. So he picked. It's the head of the teachers' union, the school teachers' union. Um, so that's a pretty extraordinary preference, especially since our school systems have been uh, so poorly run. So we'll talk with him. We'll also talk with Jim Edwards. Jim Edwards is an advocate who has a, a perspective on our patent system. And there's an event coming up in a few weeks, and we'll talk about that. But first, what you need to know. This is kind of January 6th select committee update. Um, You're starting to see some articles written about the January 6th select committee. And the articles are, are trying to write about how the January 6th select committee is winding down its work. And you say to yourself, well, wait a second. Um, It it was uh, front page news. It was all over the cable news, everything for two months this summer. And they said they were going to have more and they were going to get to the bottom of this and it was going to lead to whatever. What do we know? What you need to know is it's a dud. The select committee is a dud in terms of delivering a smoking gun or anything else. But it's not a dud, as I told you, in terms of affecting and impacting the public opinion and how people see things. Because for two months, we got brainwashed with a one-sided message. The one side was everything was an insurrection and uh, everything was truly evil and everything was related to Trump. And even though they couldn't prove any of those things, they're just done now because they suddenly realized it wasn't going to lead anywhere past that. But they got what they needed. And now the cleanup crew has to come through. And wind things up where you have some valedictory speeches by the investigating congressman and and you have a final report prepared. And, of course, there's no dissent because there's nobody dissenting on the committee. It's a it was always a show trial. But also you have to wrap up the committee before anyone gets too close and starts to scrutinize it. For example, there's 14000 hours of videotape. That's never been released. There's videotape of the bombers who set up pipe bombs at the RNC and DNC the night before. There's all kinds of details that are out there. And the best thing that the select committee can do for its in its own interest is fold up shop, wrap things up and uh, and move on and uh, and put it all into a bound volume and quote it. And here's one detail about it. And this is one thing that I disagree with some Republicans about. I tell I, I tell Republicans that you should reopen the select committee and say that its work was not completed. In other words, when the new Congress comes in, they should reconstitute the same select committee in the sense that they should say there are still unanswered questions. Therefore, we're going to answer those questions and then we'll do a new final report. 
Because otherwise what's happening is the select committee is basically writing the history as it wants it, putting it into the canon. There it is. The select committee investigated things. And if you try to say, well, but there wasn't this investigator, wasn't that in history a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now, people will say, oh, geez, you're trying to rewrite history. There was a congressional committee. There was hours and days of testimony. There were public hearings. There were requests for submissions. If people didn't make their arguments back then, no, don't try to don't try to be a weirdo and restate it now. Don't do that. That's what they're doing. So uh, on one hand, we should celebrate because the select committee is fading. On another hand, we should grieve because it has impacted our public discourse. And in a third way, and that is the history of it, we should act. We should act to keep it open to resolve the missing questions. For example, who was Ray Epps? Why haven't we found that out? There's, there's dozens, hundreds of questions like that. So what you need to know is we should celebrate its ending. We should grieve its impact, but we should act to change the ending that they're trying to write for us. That's what you need to know. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. A couple of days ago, Mark, I mentioned to our listeners that I was going to come back and talk to you because uh, of, of Charlie Chris, the now former congressman who is running as a Democrat uh, for governor of Florida. And Mark Mix is uh, the president of the committee and found Excuse me. He's the president of uh, the National Right to Work Committee. It's a very big public policy organization, almost three million members. But he also is the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. And uh, that in that capacity helps a lot of folks that are uh, trying to stand up for their rights. Uh, in particular, he is uh, um, a fixture on the scene helping protect workers. So, uh, Mark, um, I, th- th- my question was, has there ever been a more blatant cl- clarifying pick of a lieutenant governor in Florida? The lieutenant governor runs on a ticket so the the governor candidate can say, I'm going to have that person do it. And in this case, he picked. Well, tell me, tell us who he picked. Yeah, he picked the uh, the president of the local Miami-Dade County Teachers Union, and uh, this lady by the name of Matt Hernandez Hernandez Matz is uh, is out there with the radicals that run the American Federation of Teachers Union and the National Education Association. And Charlie Chris thinks that's the best package to put forward to the voters in Florida who have who have been educated very effectively by Ron DeSantis about the damage that government unions have done uh, to the educational system. In, in America, uh, Mark Mix is our guest. Uh, Mark, um, but it, it seems, and so it's a trick box in a way because I, I would say that Florida has had more success with their schools um, because of the governor, because he did a lot of things, and in particular, he's now helped run candidates for school boards, nonpartisan school board races, and won a lot of them. So I, I'm not, I'm not sitting in too, too harsh a judgment on the education system in Florida. I'm not that familiar, except to say, what clarified for me more than ever. And I knew it the, during COVID was the teachers unions were out for the teachers. And frankly, 
it, it worked again. They, they got tons of money in the COVID stuff yeah. that was supposed to go to training. It was supposed to go to PPE. We know it bolstered salaries for people that didn't have to work. I'm not, I'm not judging them. A lot of people couldn't work because of the shutdowns and all. But even more importantly and more blatantly, they advocated for their, their, their pensions, which were underwater in lots of places because of bad investments and, and just poorly run systems. So, and frankly, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and, and you look at the, the worst, the only place I see systemic racism in America is our schools. And that's the teachers <laughs> unions. The teachers unions do it. So Charlie Chris just chose not like a teacher. He chose, chose the teachers union. That's right. And there's a huge separation in many cases between teachers and their teacher union officials. You're absolutely right, Ed. And you're right. This is a, a kind of the radical nature of the Chris Pick. I mean, if you go out to Los Angeles, you go to the uh, the uh, the teachers union out there, the head, the president of that union, they gave one interview last year about this time and was asked about the shutdown of the school system out there. And she said, well, you know, it's OK if our babies didn't learn their times tables. They learned the difference between a riot and a protest an insurrection. And they learned about survival and resilience. I mean, that's the viewpoint of the of the top leadership of the teachers union. And that's who Charlie Christ picked to be his running mate. I mean, it's almost like a forearm shiver to the taxpayers and the parents of the students in California or excuse me, in Florida. In this case, it's like, OK, we're going to just poke you right in the eye now and tell you that, you know, we're going to back this the radical stance of the teachers union over the common sense programs that Governor DeSantis implemented during that whole process and what he's done to improve the education system in Florida. Well, and I would say it even um, again, like the it's it's more of an acknowledgement too. And again, our guest is Mark Mix, who uh, is a uh, you know the leader at the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, and uh, a great comment, great out there, great commenting, great commentator, and out um, publicly describing what's going on. But it's even more blatant in my mind, Mark. And tell me, you can tell me I'm, I think you'll tell me I'm right. But in the, in this sense, <laughs> what Charlie Chris said was. I really don't care about policy. All I care about is politics because he was a he's a former Republican who who has like when he was in governor, was governor, he was somewhat conservative on a few things, but then became, you know, went left and, and stayed left. But so he's saying, I'm just going to try to go get the teachers unions who I know will spend tens of millions of dollars to your point, Mark, one of your issues. They'll spend the union dues of members who many of them who don't believe in, in Charlie Crist, but they'll spend them in politics and so it's a political argument. No, it's not even an argument. It's a political maneuver more than it is anything else. It says who he'll be beholden to. That's OK. At least we know that he admit, he's admitting it. But it's more about I don't care what anybody says. I'm just going to go try to get the union dollars and the union votes uh, and use their political machine. You're right, Ed. You knew I was going to agree with you. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> you know, you, you listen to, to John Fetterman, the Senate candidate up in Pennsylvania, basically said the same thing to the teachers. He said, look, you're going to be the first call I make when I ask, when I'm thinking about educational issues, when I get to Washington as a U.S. senator. That's if he gets to Washington as a U.S. senator. But what he's saying there is exactly what you just articulated, that, that Chris, the calculation that he made, he knows there's millions and millions and millions of campaign dollars that come with that selection. And basically, the teachers union, they've got something to prove now, right? Right. 
this is an opportunity for them to say, hey, look, watch us and we're going to scare, we're, we're going to put a hide on the wall and you're going to have to respect us going forward in a big way. And it'll come with lots, as you mentioned, Ed, correctly. It'll come with millions and millions and millions of dollars. And that's the calculation. You're right. It's, um, uh, Mark, did the, did the, uh, did the effort, that, I mean, did the COVID lockdowns um, change the equation with the teachers unions or the pr- public perception? And I think, I think I know that it did. People sort of saw more clearly, hey, wait a second. Uh, the, one of the bullies here is the teachers unions. And that's who McAuliffe was talking to when he said parents shouldn't get involved in the schools or however he said that. But, but I guess my question is, by the time you get busy and life goes fast and, and, and quick and, and, and moves on, a lot of people are back in school. A lot of kids are back in school, public schools, and feels like a lot of people have moved on, meaning voters have moved on. Um, did it change enough to change the sort of broken parts of our system? Well, I think if you the best person to ask that question of is Governor Glenn Youngkin in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I mean, I was with him last night and we talked about this, about the about the educational issue and the involvement of the parents. And now, Ed, it's gone nationwide. I mean, you mentioned very briefly uh, Governor DeSantis' success in, in electing school board members down in Florida. And that's happening all across the country. Ed, if you can repeal or if you can recall three school board members in San Francisco, right. there's something <laughs> bigger afoot and right. there's something bigger afoot. I don't think parents are going to parents are going to let this get by them. I mean, if you look at the enrollment in the government school system over this last year, I mean, they're down a couple of million entries into the government school system because parents have said, this is so important that we're going to choose charter schools or private schools or we're going to homeschool. We're not going to send them back into that government school system. So I think they're staying power. I think it's going to be an issue that's certainly going to go through November. And I think it's going to go beyond. And I think the union officials are on alert. The bureaucracy is on alert. The elites are on the alert that people are paying attention. And Ed, that's the secret uh, to make all this 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 grand experiment in self-government work, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but I, I, it is. And then but then I, I, I get this sinking feeling sometimes. Again, we're talking with Mark Mixon. Let me say NRTW.org uh, is a website. They have National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation has a ton of information there to learn more about many of these issues that we're talking about. But the sinking feeling I get is that the bureaucrats and the and the unions, which I lump together, they know how to outlast, um, you know, sort of we the people, meaning you get new school boards. And then I remember in, in, in Missouri, I think this is right. If you're elected to the school board, you, you are required by some sort of, I don't know, association decree to go to a training. And so you go down to a training of the Missouri School Board Association, and it's not, they don't exactly, you know, bring in the abortionists and say, be a left winger, but they do an awful lot of stuff that if you're new, you don't really even know. You're sort of into the system. And after a while, people get get into the system. It's not, it's too dramatic to say Stockholm syndrome. I don't mean to be too, again, too glib about it, but Pete, over time they say, oh yeah, well, I mean, I know there's school districts that are bad and I know that CRT is bad, but, but we've changed it up. We're just, we're just teaching an enlightened uh, curriculum and, and we're just um, not going to do transparency because it's really hard to justify to people that don't understand how complex education is or whatever. Right. And I guess the, the, that's my worry is the, these things ebb and flow a little bit. And that, so my question, Mark is what would you say was is the single best legislative act at the national level or just state level or even local that can help sort of keep the system working for the kids and the parents you know what do you say that you say okay you guys got in great do this 
Yeah, it's real simple. I mean, prohibiting union bargaining in the government school system. And we did it in Virginia. We had a, we passed a law in 1993 that said the government of Virginia can listen to, they can engage, they can meet with unions, but they are not bound legally to listen to them and deal with them and agree with them on anything. And it's the power of monopoly bargaining, Ed, that gives the union officials this inordinate, out-of-proportion power to their numbers and to who they are that allow them to be, be in between taxpayers, parents, and elected officials. And you know, and you made the comment already, they're out there. They play politics at the major league level. They play at every level, the city council, the school board, the county commission. And oftentimes, all of us on the side of freedom and liberty, you know, working for our state legislators, a tough job and an important job, but a tough job. Getting into the city council elections, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? I've only got five nights a week. So I get <laughs> right, where you're coming right, from. Right. But here, here's where we got seven nights a week or whatever, whatever. But the point is, the point is, is that when we take away that special privilege that union officials have been granted to get in a in a privileged position between taxpayers and elected officials, that's when real change starts. In Virginia, they passed a local option bargaining law when the Democrats controlled the House of Delegates and the state Senate and the governorship. And so now four of the biggest municipalities in, in or counties in Virginia are now bargaining, but they're they're finally getting this, um, this raw awakening like, you mean we have to agree to this and we have to agree to this? And that's why Scott Walker back in Wisconsin, when they passed Act 10, and save the state something like $3 billion in, in revenue when they reformed the bargaining system. They didn't do away with bargaining. They limited the terms of what they could bargain over. But the real secret is stop giving the union officials, this private organization, the privilege to get themselves between elected officials and taxpayers. That's the solution. It doesn't belong in the public sector. Bargaining does not belong in the public sector. And that's how we're going to save the school system. Is to, And that is the one solution. Eliminate the bargaining. Get the unions out of this position where you have and you must agree with them. You must negotiate with them. And then if you're Iowa and Governor Terry Branstad, you object to what the what the bargaining comes up with. You say, I'm not going to do it. They bring an arbitrator in from uh, some other state. And he says, you got to raise taxes. That's what the law says. And the union says, yeah, you got to raise taxes. That's what happens when you have a, the unions in a position yeah. where they are they are above. They are above ordinary citizens to redress their government. It happens so fast, Mark. And, and I mean, things move to the next crisis. But, you know, that that to me is the sort of ultimate drain the swamp thing once. And they warned about this. Yeah. Once you have t- unions that are public sector unions, you're, you're negotiating against yourself. And in the sense that politicians don't want to, uh, they, they want to raise pay and raise pensions because they want to, you know, they want to stay in power. It, it's, it is, it, and I mean that broadly. That's the, the broad question. But in our schools, it's even more pressing. All right. I, I have to run, unfortunately. Yeah. Mark Mix, he's the president of the National Right to Work Committee, but also the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. If you go to nrtw.org, you can see a lot of their work there and also over on Twitter at Right to Work. Uh, Thank you, Mark. I appreciate your time. Ed, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. I'll put up on social media links to all this stuff. I'll be right back. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with Jim Edwards, our old friend. Uh, Jim Edwards is a a former staffer up on Capitol Hill, worked in the Senate and uh, has been around the process a lot. In the last uh, decade that I've known him, especially, he has been a very, very important voice on conservative property rights broadly, but in particular in patents and the patent system, which is a system that people take for granted uh, in many ways. And, And 
and uh, I've learned so much in, over these years, uh, especially the late Phyllis Schlafly wrote about how important the patent system was for transforming America and the world. And uh, there's a lot of details in there. One of the things President Donald Trump did a great job of putting a smart guy in to lead the patent office and, and make um, make things work well, because it's uh, if the patent system works well, it incentivizes invention and it also uh, makes competitiveness sort of uh, regular and even. You can compete and you can succeed. You can compete and not succeed, but you at least know how the playing field is working. So uh, welcome back, Jim Edwards. How are you? I'm great, Ed. It's great to be on your show again, and thanks so much for having me. Well, and we'll get to in a minute the event that you and I are both a part of in a few weeks up in Capitol Hill. That uh, I think it's the fifth annual event, but we'll get to that in a minute. But there's a piece that you wrote over uh, in uh, the in Insight dot dot org, a kind of trade uh, publication of intellectual property and others. But Jim, um, it's you're talking here about the PTAB, and I want you to pretend that like it was, you know five or seven years ago when you first started teaching me that the person listening to you doesn't know what any of this is. So what, tell us, your, 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 your piece is a warning about America's competitive health being damaged by, in this case, bureaucrats and big tech, two of my least favorite uh, topics. But walk <laughs> us through how to understand this if we're lay people. Sure. Um, well, as you as everybody knows, there's the Patent and Trademark Office, and this job is to examine um, uh, proposals for uh, on inventions to see if they're patent worthy. And then there's the uh, the federal court system that adjudicates individual cases after patents have been issued. And so that's cases of patent infringement, somebody using an invention without um, license or permission or uh, challenging the patent's validity that should right. ever have been issued. So the PTAB is a patent trial and appeal board. That's only been around since the early uh, 20 uh, teens. Tw- tw- 2011 was the bill that their law that uh, created the patent trial and appeal board. It is an adjudicatory body within the administrative agency of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and its job, its sole job, is to is to review patents. It's it's an, another parallel venue for patent infringers or others who want to challenge the validity of a patent to take their challenge right. in addition to federal court. So this is something that's new in that there were there were you know kind of iterations of it not nearly um of the the the, the scale or scope but it was what's different about ptab is it is a uh an adversarial setup so you've got one party challenging another and you know there's a lot of things about ptab's proceedings that they they are similar to courts Real courts and Article Three federal courts, but they are not at all um, on the, bound by the same sets of rules. So, for instance, there's no requirement for standing. That is being party to the case and controversy. There's um, there's no standing requirement in PTAP. Mm-hmm. There's a lower standard of proof. To, so to prove the patent is, is um, or, or to get to con- prove the invalidity or 
of the, the challenge patent is only a clear and convincing evidence standard, which is a kind of a toss of the coin, the uh, right. coin. And then um, in the federal court, you you have clear and convincing evidence, which is a very high standard of proof. Um, Jim, um, yeah, Jim, Jim, yeah, Jim, but let me pause for one second, Jim. Did, did, did the PTAB, so this, this, so to describe it, maybe like really, really basic, you'd say, well, in 2011, uh, they created basically another administrative body to, and, and probably someone said it, it's too complicated to have a federal, a regular federal district court judge figure out patents. We'll have a specialized group and do this. So what was created? Is, am I reading it right that there are now hundreds of patent uh, specialty p- administrative patent judges. Is that right? There's uh, over a hundred, I guess, is the number I see. Um, yeah, yeah, there's over a hundred. Yes. And, and so I'm, now, I'm not sure that. So now, point, yeah, so, it, yeah. So now they have these sort of specialized administrative law judges on patents who are um, who are not uh, confirmed by the Senate, um, who are, uh, I guess, appointed by who the patent uh, office. Uh, yeah, the patent office uh, hires them. The only uh, person who is in the, the picture in this in any regard is the patent and trademark office director, who is right. presidentially appointed and Senate approved. But he or she doesn't sit necessarily on the PTAB. There's another. I think I think I saw there's a chief administrative patent judge. But OK, so so you got this. Um, so they're, you got they're on a body. Uh, they're on a, a board that oh. um, oversees the PTAB. OK. All right. So now you got the PTAB. So it, the system is set up to allow people to fight over patents. But here's where it gets hard. You'd say, oh, well, it's not good. You could have, um, you know, Judy Dinklepop, who invents something, goes in and says, I have this patent. I I wasn't the first to file because I was off working on it, but I did invent it. Here's my proof and all. That's not what happens. What happens is uh, big time lawyers or big time entities with lots of lawyers use the administrative system to tie up people that have patents. And again, I'm overstating it, but that's sort of the problem, right? That that is the problem. Is the the it's easy to get the 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 challenge uh, petition. Um, taken and right. approve and, and move a proceeding on it um, about seventy uh, percent of those petitions are granted so right. they launch these these PTAB quote unquote trials mm-hmm. um, and what you have is the the invalidation rate at PTAB is eighty four percent of the patents that PTAB reviews are invalidated entirely or in part. Mm. Compare that to a federal court that has fairness, due process, and, and higher standards. Yeah. Federal courts invalidate about 30% of challenge patent claims. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when you look, yeah. And when you, yeah, exactly. And when you look at and your, your piece lays, uh, describes a lot of this, the, the, the beneficiaries of creating an administrative state and administrative power around patents are big tech and the Chinese, and they're not shy about it. They, right. they, they're basically saying, watch us either get the patents or, or tie you up in knots so that at a certain point, a, a rational decision by a small or medium sized firm that has a couple of patents 
reasons would be to sell. It's easier to get paid to sell and not spend your money on litigation and spend years uh, dragging through. So who who's on the side of the angels on this? Is there I know in here you talk about Senator Patrick Leahy of uh, Vermont, who's not a, he's on the side of uh, allowing the PTAB and, you know, no surprise, an old fashioned Democrat is is growing the size of the administrative state and the administrative lawyers and all. But who's on the side of the angels on this? Who's fighting it? And and is it clear um, how important it is? Well, just before I answer that, okay. let me let me just tell you the top five users of, of the PTAB, uh-huh. Samsung, Apple, Google, LG, Microsoft, sixth is Intel, seventh is Unified Patents, eighth is Cisco. So you get a picture. This is this is truly big tech and foreign big business and um and particularly uh, you get down the list not too far and you get ZTE and Huawei and those type entities. So this is not um, uh, for people who are, are the, the most, um, um, the best inventors. This is for the biggest entities that are users of other people's patents. And so it is in their business interest um, to invalidate so they can use those patents or those inventions without having to pay royalties or pay lower rates. Right, right, right. So that's that's what that's about. From the national security standpoint, it's it's Chinese national champions like Huawei and ZTE get the chance to invalidate patent claims and and use them to advance their own um, uh, ability, their own technology offerings in, in the marketplace, which uh, challenge means an American company is not getting royalties and uh, and licensing fees uh, from them. There, <laughs> the the Chinese can can undermine the patent and then um, go in forth and use the invention that they didn't make. Yeah, it's um, it is all right. So Jim, because I'm, I'm running out of time, Jim Edwards is our guest, and his piece I'll put it up on social media. I, um, one of the groups that is on this, by the way, is the IP Watchdog. IP Watchdog, where Jim is also co- a contributor. Um, Jim, uh, tell us quickly talk about this this event um, coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, September 21st, fifth annual event where uh, you and I and others sort of host this both a, a, a discussion, a sort of intellectual discussion, as well as a dinner that highlights the issues so and, and you can go to uh, phyllis schlafly.com and, and see all the details but um one thing are you finding jim has the world changed in terms of the understanding of china and big tech in say the last five years that you're getting a different reception from lawmakers and policymakers it feels like it should be dramatic but i'm not sure that always just because it feels that way doesn't mean it's a reality I'd say uh, yes, but and the yes is you've <laughs> yeah. got um, recently enacted legislation from the, the the Senate developed the Chips and Science Act, and it's it's a little bit too um, government heavy in terms of picking winners and losers and and um, industrial policy on the order of highly centralized governments. Um, including China. So going that direction is problematic, but that's kind of um, one piece of it. The, the, other, the, the, the other part of it is yes, but it, the, it, having people make the connection between 
understanding patents and invention. If you have invention, that is, uh, and, and patents secure the property right to it, then people with property rights that are valid and reliable and enforceable, they can go forth and ma- maximize the commercial benefit, Let's bring see. products to market, and and build and grow the economic pie, which if you have a larger economy, um, you're able to fund a greater, um, more innovative focused Hmm. um, um, national security structure. So that's important. And that's how it's kind of a virtual, a virtuous circle. Yeah. Um, yep. There. That's this virtuous circle that feeds one another. It's a circle. Yeah. Well, it certainly is. It's important. And, you know, I, I, as we talk about all these, uh, the debate over 1776 and the 1619 and all those things, I always uh, think of the, uh, the lengthy speech that Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly gave in the 80s to the Daughters of the American Revolution, where she went through uh, example and example about how our patent system created inventions. You know, why did it, why did all these inventions happen in America? It wasn't it wasn't in the water. It wasn't um, necessarily our education system. There's great schools, other places. It was that uh, people respond to incentives and a system of law as well as uh, patent protection that made it, you know, made it um, uh, something that you wanted to do, something that was advantageous to people. So. All right, Jim Edwards, thanks very much for your time and for I will put up on social media your uh, your column and uh, your essay on this, as well as the information on the upcoming event. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, thanks, Ed. All right, we'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Go to ProAmericaReport.com to uh, see this interview and in, uh, details and PhyllisSchlafly.com for more on that event. Be right back. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, from the Phyllis Schlafly Center Studios, Ed Martin. President Joe Biden's approval rating continues to fall despite the Democrats' effort to prop him up. In a New York Times-Siena poll, Biden's approval rating tanked to only 33%, which is far too low for Democrats to retain control of the Congress or even the White House. Early voting for the midterm elections has begun all across the country, and time has nearly run out for Democrats to save their sinking ship. With both houses under Democrat control, public confidence in Congress has fallen to only 7% as measured by Gallup. Confidence in the most liberal television news networks has fallen to 11%. More new signs are emerging that show Democrats are turning against their own president. A startlingly negative assessment of Joe Biden in the New York Times and a subsequent column there saying he's too old to run again suggests that Biden may become a scapegoat for the liberals. In fact, Biden is several years younger than the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and she's younger than her own heir apparent, Representative Steny Hoyer of Maryland. Election fraud, not Biden's age, may be why people overwhelmingly reject him now. I think it's very likely that Biden was never popular to begin with. There is clear evidence to indicate that Biden was placed in the White House through rampant ballot harvesting and the use of unattended ballot drop boxes. These dirty practices were just declared illegal by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Ballot dumps, often in the middle of the night, were done by hired Democrat ballot harvesters in battleground states. Democrats have really backed themselves into a corner with this one. Either their guy has turned the American people against him with his horrible policy decisions and gaffes, or else he was a train wreck to begin with. 
Regardless of the degree to which these two factors have led to Biden's rampant unpopularity, the truth remains this. Holding an America last philosophy doesn't play well at the polls. Other would-be presidential contenders should take note that apology tours and capitulation to globalist bureaucracies are simply not the ways to win the hearts of hardworking Americans. From Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin. Election fraud has the power to destroy the America we know and love. Never again can we allow an election to be stolen. At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll find reasonable, workable strategies for assuring the integrity of every future election. Visit phyllisschlafly.com today. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, we got to wrap things up today. Let me point you in a direction. I told you that I love books, and I love reading, and I love everything that's going on right now with uh, so many good books. Well, I just got in the mail. I just got in the mail in, um, I guess, three days ago. Uh, the next book, I'm going to talk to him. Let me see. Where is it? Oh, there it is. I'm going to talk to him, Martin Dugard. He's the national best-selling author of many books. He's co-author with um, Bill O'Reilly of the Killing Series. But he wrote a book called Taking Paris. And I love that book. It was about Paris and World War II and when they took it. Um, and uh, it is really cool. Well, he's written a book, Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. And uh, it's excellent. I'm reading it right now. We're going to have him. The book launches on November 1st, and we'll have Martin Dugard on the program. The other book I want to tell you about, it's extraordinary. It is such a good book. I'm going to have him on the show in the next few weeks. His name is uh, Congressman uh, Niels. I got to pronounce it right. Congressman Niels, Troy Niels. He is um, a first-term congressman who has a, a great history uh, himself. He was a sheriff, um, and he ran for Congress. And on January 6th, he was just three days in Congress, and there's a famous picture of him holding a, um, uh, a uh, not a flagpole, but like a, 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 um, a, a pole that he picked up off the ground, and he's uh, warding off what he thought were attackers. Anyway, he writes a book that basically lays out the big fraud. It's called The Big Fraud. It's really good. Really, really good. Uh, it's extraordinary. So we'll, we'll talk with him too. All right, we got to run. Ed Martin, thank you as always uh, to my great friend Noah Dingley and to Joanna Spilger. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. On the answer, San Diego.